It's always nice when you get up and a whole bunch of people leave right away. Before we start, um, just to stray off topic for just a moment, as Angel was speaking, and I checked to make sure this was all right, um, about you know reading a book and really desiring to get to the end of the book. Well, a certain unnamed person who I'm married to, uh, when she goes book shopping, she will actually open up the last chapter, read the whole thing before she decides if she wants to purchase the book or not. True story. That's terrible. You know... <laughs> And she remembers, too. If I did it, I would, I would forget by the time I got to the end, but she remembers the story because she wants to know whether or not it's something that she wants to invest her time in, which I guess is smart, but it's just, oh. Anyway, now that we've gone there, and I know I'll hear about that later, uh, Psalm 66, if you would please turn with me in your Bible to Psalm chapter 66. We're beginning um, a multi-week um, teaching on Psalm 66, and don't worry, I think I've just got the first week, and Randy will take care of the rest of it. So Psalm 66, today we're going to cover verses 1 through 7, Uh, but if you would, please stand with me, and we'll read the entire psalm. Uh, Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for what it has for us. And ask that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, uh, to see what you have for us, to hear the words that you have for us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is Psalm 66. To the choir master, a song, a psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name, Selah. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net and laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Selah. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. You may be seated. So this psalm begins by talking about shouting for joy. And when I was thinking of shouting for joy, I was, I really, what I wanted to do this morning is to show you a video. Um, 
but we don't have a TV anywhere, so I've got to kind of act this out, so please uh, forgive me. This is Jim Cantor, if you're familiar with the Weather Channel, and you've seen this before, so don't start laughing yet. This man is outside, and he is up in New England, and he is waiting on this significant weather event called Thunder Snow. Okay, it's this weird thing that happens when it's in the middle of the snowstorm and st somehow there's still lightning and thunder happening at the same time. It happens several times a year. It's a very rare occurrence. This is Jim Cantor of the Weather Channel on Thunder Snow. This is him, okay? Yes! Yes! Yes, we got it, baby! We got it! Woo! Woo! Listen to that. You can have your $500 million jackpot or whatever it is. But I'll take that, baby. One, two, three, four lightning strikes. Four episodes of Thunderstone. Yes! <laughs> Have you seen the video? Okay. So that's him. Don't let anybody tell you that it's only Southerners that get excited about snow, okay? <laughs> this man is up in New England, and he's seeing this, and he's responding in that way. And I will tell you, Honestly, the only time I have ever responded like that involves sports, okay? <laughs> Football, baseball, hockey. I mean, I've been there, not basketball, but, you know, all the rest of the times that I have ever responded like that about anything has been in relation to sports. And I started thinking back, not that long ago, last week, standing right here where I'm standing. And if you were here and you, and you couldn't hear, or maybe you just weren't here, we had this woman standing right where I'm standing, Mervet Nuehead. Okay, and, and she stood right here and shared about all the amazing work that God had been doing in her life and the lives of her children. Okay, the ways that God was using even the worst circumstances, the loss of her husband, the loss of her son to cancer, to, to use those things to draw people to himself through her testimony. How powerful is that? How life-changing is that? You know, if I can scream and holler at my TV about a football game and get excited when Auburn takes the ball all the way down the field with one second left, <laughs> why can't I get that excited when someone shares about the goodness and greatness of God in their life? You know, what's wrong with me when I'm sitting here listening to someone like that and I'm checking my phone to see how long it is until we get out of here? You know, so the, the command here is to make a joyful noise. You know, have you ever made a joyful noise? Probably most of you. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever made a joyful noise in church? Okay, so now before we start heading for the exits because we're becoming Pentecostal... Um, <laughs> I would be the first one out the door, by the way. Um, what we're talking about here is not just raising the volume of our praises. Here's Charles Spurgeon talking about um, what he was seeing going on in uh, ancient churches, these churches around him. He said, The pomp of the ancient festivals is not to be intimidated by us, imitated by us, sorry, under this dispensation of the Spirit, but we are to throw so much of heart and holy reverence into all our worship that it shall be the best we can render. Heart worship and spiritual joy render praise more glorious than vestments, incense, and music could do. See, praise is not about the volume of our song. It's about the volume of our heart. 
Is my heart engaged when I am worshiping God? Is there any other way to worship than without my heart? You know, we did this a few weeks ago, but, you know, what's the definition of praise? And I took us to Wikipedia. I quoted this. um, It's actually a quote from a research project called The Semantics of Praise, where it says, Praise refers to positive evaluations made by a person of another's products, performances, or attributes, where the evaluator presumes the validity of the standards on which the evaluation is based. Do you remember that? Okay, so we are praising the positive evaluations. This is our positive evaluations on another person's products, performances, or attributes. What deserves praise? The products, performance, and attributes of another. And today we are going to look at these things in relation to God. In verse 3 of chapter 66, it says, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Now this word awesome can be translated several ways. And one of the ways it can be translated is the word terrible. It means to fear or to stand in awe of, to revere. So awesome and terrible are interchangeable. So some translations actually say, how terrible are your deeds? You know, man, that's not a way that we commonly think about God, would it be? You probably know the old Rich Mullins songs, Awesome God. But what if we change that to terrible God? You know, our God is a terrible God, we praise, right? Would we want to sing that song? It doesn't quite have the same effect. But these words, they're interchangeable, they're they're synonymous. They both deal in terms of power. How awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing towards you. We see this in the Old Testament. The people of Jericho, as Rahab lets these spies up into um, into her house, she says that the people are, their hearts are melting because of what God had done parting the Red Sea. They are so terrified of the works of God. The Gibeonites, a little bit later in Joshua chapter 9, they, they talk about how terrified they are. Um, they, they come to the Israelites pretending to be from a faraway place because they've seen them just march through the land and plow down their enemies. And they're terrified of the awesome, terrible works of God. But the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 5, they've captured the Ark of the Covenant. And they keep the Ark in front of their false idol, Dagon. And they come in in the morning, and Dagon has fallen over on his face in front of the ark. And they stand it back up, and the next morning they come in, and his hands and his head are cut off. The land gets filled with tumors and mice before they finally take it and put it back on a cart and ship it back off to Israel because they are so terrified of God. You know, Many people have this image of God being terrible in the Old Testament and loving and and kind in the New Testament. But the same thing happens in the New Testament. Not too long ago, Pastor Randy preached on Jesus when he was dealing with a, a possessed man. And what did he do? He took the demons that were inside this man and he placed them into a herd of 2,000 pigs and they ran off a cliff and drowned themselves. And the herdsmen ran away back to the town. They came back and they pleaded with Jesus to do what? To leave them. They were so terrified 
of this power that Jesus had. So this isn't just an Old Testament thing, but the awesomeness, the power of God goes hand in hand. And the psalmist, he invites the entire world to come and see what God has done. How awesome are his deeds to the children of man. You know, this invitation, it's to come and see. And really, this is, this is what we might call acceptable universalism. Okay? Acceptable universalism. Now, universalism is the idea that all of us can get together, and it doesn't matter what we believe, that we can all get together in the same room, um, and that all of us, in the end, God is just going to save everyone because he loves us. Okay? That, that God doesn't care what you believe, he doesn't care what you do, that God's just going to send everyone to heaven because God is like that. You know, there's so many problems with this line of thinking. But, but the one thing that, that the universalists kind of have right is this invitation to everyone to come together. You know, the, the, the doors of the church should be open to people of every race, ethnicity, religion, orientation, any of that. To, the invitation goes out to come and see the works of God. Not so that we can all be here together and know that everyone will go to heaven regardless of what they believe, but so that people can come and see. A.R. Fawcett says this, that the church at all times should appeal to the world. Come and see, as Jesus said to the two disciples of John the Baptist and Philip and to Nathaniel. God's marvels are to be seen by all, and seeing them is the first step towards believing in their divine author. Because the, invi- the entire world should be invited to witness the works of God. Because when the works of God are seen and recognized, that's the first step to faith. So seeing is the first step to faith. It's the first step towards believing. We see the works of God and we recognize them as such. That's We're one step closer to him. So here the psalmist is actually referencing two of these terrible, awesome works of God that are found in the Old Testament. You know, these, these are two performances that um, they really stand out amongst time. They're the two seminal moments, if you will, in Hebrew history. Um, they didn't just happen in, in, in a time and place, although they did happen in that time and place. But, but we're, these are events that we're invited to look back on now and marvel still at the awesome works of God. Spurgeon says that these are such glorious events, they're standing wonders throughout all time. A voice sounds forth concerning them. Come and see. So let's turn over to Exodus chapter 14. When we get to Exodus 14, we're going to turn to verse 10. Here's your backstory. This is, of course, Israelites had been taken, had gone to Egypt um, after 400 years after Joseph had passed away. Um, the Egyptians decided to take them, had taken them as their slaves. Uh, God comes to, to set them free. All he sends is Moses, Moses and Aaron. They're armed with a staff and ten plagues. Okay, and finally, after all these different things that God does, the last one being the death of the firstborn son of all the Egyptians, of which everyone has seen this, Pharaoh finally relents and not only sends off the people, but actually pays them to leave them alone. He pays them to go and to leave. But God hardens, Pharaoh, God hardens Pharaoh's heart again. And he sent out after them, determining to take vengeance on the people of God. 
and to reclaim his slaves. So that's, that's the, the preface here. Exodus 14, verses 10 through 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel list, lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt, to leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to his people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You know, sometimes we think that it's only, only if we had seen God working with our own eyes that we would have faith in him. If only I had actually seen these miracles myself. Well, well these guys have just come out of Egypt. They just went through what we still celebrate today in the Passover, the Passover, where they saw the angel of death come upon the firstborn of Israel, and yet here they are quaking in their boots when they see Pharaoh and his army coming after that. They had just seen the awesome and terrible work of God, and yet they are terrified of who? Pharaoh. You know, at times, remember, when we're, sometimes we're just desiring to witness firsthand the awesome and terrible works of God. Maybe not terrible. We want to see the awesome works of God in a real and vivid way in our life. But remember that throughout history, those people who have seen the hand of God have been so quick to forget it. Yeah, but look how Moses responds to the people. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Translation, sit down and shut up. <laughs> this happens yet again, so... So as the people, they go on and they, and they, they cross through to the Red Sea, and we read this, the song of Moses uh, earlier before that talks about the earth swallowing them up. That's in direct relation. This was the song that he sings just after they cross the other side. He's talking about Pharaoh's army being swallowed up by the sea. And yet the people are still disobedient. And they still go and they still complain. And they're, and they're, and they're telling Moses, why did you bring us out in the desert to die? We're just going to starve to death. We're going to get dehydrated. There's nothing in it for us. We should turn back. We never should have listened to you. Because of that, God leaves them in a stall pattern for 40 years and waiting until all of these people die off. Okay. And, and after they die off, and it's, now it's their grandchildren, their children, their grandchildren, and they are now ready, God says, to enter the promised land. And so God is going to do something else for them again. He's going to do something that their parents saw, that their grandparents saw. You see, at the crossing of the Red Sea, the fear of God was replaced with the fear of man. Sorry, the fear of man was replaced with the fear of God at the crossing of the Red Sea. And after they had all departed and gone away, now it's time for a new generation to see what God is capable of doing. You can turn forward a little bit to Joshua chapter 4. Verse 21. 
And he said to the people of Israel, this is Joshua, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? And they had taken stones from the bottom of the river and they had placed them in a monument next to the side. God had taken the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, as the priest stepped into the river, the water stopped. The entire nation passed on dry ground. God got one, one man from each tribe. They, they hauled this big rock out of the river and they set it up um, into, into a little pillar um, on the side of the river. It says, when, these, when your children ask what these stones What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. And so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so what are the two reasons for God's awesome works here? The first one is that all the world may know his power. That everyone would see this, that, that there was also in the middle of the river, um, Joshua erected a, another uh, pillar monument in the, in the middle of the river that would be seen. And there's no way to get the stones, the stones in the river don't just do that. That was a testimony to God's awesome work. And the second reason he did this was so that they may fear him forever that you might fear him forever. You see, fear is a good thing. It's a sign of respect. It's a recognition of power. If you hold a gun in your hand and you do not fear what that gun is capable of doing, you should put the gun down. If you get behind the wheel of three tons of steel and fiberglass and you are not fearful of what that vehicle is doing in the blink of an eye or the blink of a text, then you should move to the back seat. Fear is good. Fear is healthy. We can't truly appreciate power without some level of fear. Should you fear God? Absolutely. Believer and unbeliever alike. This is the words of uh, William S. Plumer. He says that if we take from the Bible its awful doctrines and from providence its terrible acts... And the whole system under which God has placed us would be emasculated. Now, why would we worship a powerless God? Have you ever thought of that? Why would I worship something that I don't fear? Turn back to Psalm 66. We see these characteristics of God found at the end of, found in in verse 7. Who rules by his might forever whose eyes keep watch on the nations let not the rebellious exalt themselves selah these characteristics who rules by his might this is the omnipotence of god the power of god whose eyes keep watch on the nations this is the omniscience of god that he is all-seeing all-knowing and he does this forever this is the eternal nature of god And finally, this brings us to God's most terrible work. And God's most terrible work was done on the cross. A Latin proverb said that the cross was like dying a thousand deaths in one. 
It was so terrible that it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. Only barbarians and slaves and the worst of criminals were nailed to crosses. We look to Isaiah chapter 53. We see that this was the plan of God for our salvation. And this was the plan of God for his son. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 7. This is talking about the servant of God. This is what was to come, the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was that chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he, not opened, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away as far, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, he was despised, rejected, filled with sorrow and grief. The people hid their faces. He was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, chastised, wounded. The iniquity of us all was laid on him. He was oppressed like a lamb led to slaughter, enduring the judgment of God, cut off, out of the land of the living, crushed with grief and anguish in his soul. And he poured out his soul to death. See, by the most terrible work of God, the sinners were ransomed and the captives were set free. See, to the watching world, we say, come and see the awesome, terrible work of God who sent his only son to the cross for you. And for me, that we might have life in him forever because of the terrible things he has done. Let's pray. Father God, it is with reverence that we come to you. Lord, recognizing your power and recognizing your majesty and recognizing the awesome works that you have done. Lord, help us to understand that. Lord, to see them ourselves and invite others to come and see the work that you have done. 
most importantly, Lord, that they could see the work that you have done for them on the cross. Lord, where you did not spare your own son, but Lord, that by his wounds we may be healed. Thank you for your amazing act of love and grace, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.